0: Hello, it's Brody. I love bringing mummification to you each week, and if you'd like to support me to keep doing that, you can make a once-off donation through the Acast supporter feature. There's no regular subscription, and your donation will help pay our music licence, buy audio gear and put fuel in my car so I can keep interviewing the amazing women who share their stories with us. There's a link in the show description and episode show notes. Ready to pop the question? Hello and welcome to Mummification. I'm your host, Brody Matner. This podcast is a space for women and parents to talk about how they're feeling. And sometimes they feel like swearing. So this episode may not be suitable for young ears. Katie Parker is a social worker, parent educator and postpartum doula and a mummy to sons who are five and seven. Son and daughter. Oh, sorry. Seven-year-old son, five-year-old daughter. Boy and a girl. You got the jackpot. Everyone wants (laughs) boy and a girl. Um, Thank you for coming on. It feels Katie and I have been talking about doing this for, I don't know, a billion years and... We've like rescheduled about five times, I think, so mm-hmm. it's so nice to see you. <laughs>
2: it's really nice
0: to see you too, and in the flesh too. I know, in real life. <laughs> if you were stuck on a desert island and you could take one meal, one drink and one personal item,
2: what would they be? Oh, my goodness. Um, one drink. Well, I mean, water would be the obvious choice there, I suppose. I do love a gin and tonic, though. Um, meal, it's always going to be the Tom Yum soup from Warragul Thai. Oh. I order it mild with an extra serve of vegetables and it is actually the most delicious thing you'll ever taste. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, personal item. Oh, gosh, Brady, you've asked me a hard question. <laughs> It's probably the hardest question (laughs) that I'll ask you. I promise the
0: rest are really easy.
2: Um, Well, I don't know. I want to say, like, my laptop probably. Yeah, like I can access music and podcasts and – Everything. Everything, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've signed up to about a bazillion courses. Oh. Like I love learning and I just, they're all sitting in the background. So, yeah, for my laptop I'd have a great opportunity to get through a few of those. All you could do. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, when I was doing research for this chat, I read your personal story on your website and I cried in a cafe. Oh, no. <laughs> Because it resonated so much with me and when you talked about the rage that you felt when your kids were little, Mm -hmm. I just felt it in my bones. And so I wanted to ask, how was your personal transition into motherhood?
2: Mm, Tough. Yeah, it was a challenge. Um, It's funny, when I think back to when I first became a mother, like when I had my son, that was back in 2015, I don't – like, it's all a bit of a blur. Like, I remember there being some really, really hard times. Like, we – my partner took a week off work. Like, he was entitled to a week of parental leave and – sorry, that's my dog. (laughs) (laughs) It's just jingling jingling around a little bit there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was in hospital until day five. And so by the time I got home, I had him home for two days before he went back to work. And – that that was a real challenge. Um, all of a sudden just, yeah, being left by myself with this baby, like really not feeling very qualifi- qualified.
0: That's the other dog. That's Magnus. Sorry, that's Magnus.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were going to just go to sleep on the couch, but it seems they have other plans. Adventuring. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: Sorry. <laughs> no, no, don't be. They will just do their thing. It's so
2: fine. Okay. All right. Um, I'll try and concentrate without worrying about them. Um, yeah. So it was. Yeah. It was. It was a real challenge, and I didn't have family around. Um, uh, so my my mum died when I was eleven. My dad was in is in Tasmania. My sister, one of my sisters, is in Tasmania, and my, the other one's in London. So we didn't have huge amounts of family support. My mother in law. Oh, Magnus. Um, He's so excited. (laughs) I'm so
0: sorry. Toby, it's so fun. How do you you edit this? We just cut it out. Right. I suppose. Okay. A fun leaf.
2: I can't believe it. Oh, look, he's flopping down like. Usually they just chill there. Okay. So we'll go back. You
0: were saying you didn't have a lot of family support.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and my my um, mother-in-law had died just before we had kids as well. And so I did have my father-in-law in Melbourne. So we lived in Melbourne when we had our, our kids to start with. And a sister-in-law who lived also lived around the corner, but she worked. Um, so she we, we would catch up and that was like a highlight of my week, was going for a, a walk with her um, around the park nearby and but yeah other than that we, we didn't really have much support in terms of you know the, the sort of the practical support um, so yeah it was it was it was a real challenge and I had a baby who didn't like to be put down and um, which, yeah, which, which made it challenging. So, you know, every time someone would come over, I'd sort of like throw the baby at them and say, I need a shower. Um, and, you know, I had a partner who worked really long hours and a lot of weekends and he often wouldn't see the baby. You know, he, he, he'd he be gone to work by the time baby and I woke up and baby would be in bed by the time he got home at the end of the day. So, yeah, it was, they were really long, as I'm sure many mums can, can relate to, really long Days, I thought you mm. were going to say
0: years. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, years as well. But yeah, particularly, particularly those yeah, those early days. Yeah, were, yeah, very long.
0: And then when you had your girl, two years, two years later.
2: Yeah, oh. yeah. So my son was almost two when she was born, um, and that just added a whole new set of challenges, really. Um, because I, well, yeah, it's so funny looking back. Looking back now, I can. can just I have so much compassion for myself and for what I was like I had no I had no understanding about um you know how to hold space for a child's feelings or you know my own triggers and where they were coming from and how to deal with that like I just I feel like I was so ill-equipped um because had anyone mentioned any of that to you no
0: (laughs) people are like breastfeed sleep there you go. Yeah. And you like, we really concentrated on the birth. Yeah, yeah. Which is obviously very important.
2: Yeah, yeah. But then there was none of – none of that was discussed. No. Like, it, it really wasn't. And I think that's obviously why I work in this space now because I'm so passionate about um, equipping parents with, a, you know, a bit of knowledge and information around what it – actually like to have children um but you yeah, know that was particularly cha- challenging that week I mean from a, the baby perspective like things went pretty well like I was a lot more re- I was a much more relaxed parent of my second child um and she pretty much just was in the carrier um like she just came along like I was very much more relaxed around her sleep and all of that sort of thing um it was more yeah the, I suppose the, the juggle of the two kids and yeah being home alone with the two of them again, very long days. Yeah. Again with my partner working really long hours. Um, and when, I mean, things sort of improved from the point where my daughter was around about eight or nine months and my son was, I don't know, two and a half or a bit more than two and a half. And we had the opportunity to travel for a year with my partner's work. And so that, that really, that was a really amazing experience. We pretty much just packed up our house and got you know sold stuff gave stuff away put everything else in storage and just set off um for a year of traveling around and that was really great because the jobs that my partner was getting at the time were like he was only working sort of half days or he didn't have a lot of the other responsibilities that he had with his his previous job and so he was so much more available and so much more present and for the first time it felt like we're actually co-parenting and that was yeah really amazing that period of time and then Things got really hard again when at the end of that trip, that that period of travelling, my partner got a job in Gippsland. So instead of returning to Melbourne, which had always been the plan, we actually moved down to Gippsland and there was this period of time where he'd started his job but we didn't have a house yet and so he sort of came back and I was house-sitting for my dad down in Hobart for a couple of months and solo parenting that whole time. And um, yeah, thinking it was going to be this short-term thing of just getting the house and We'd move over but it took much longer than we thought and you know, two months later, <laughs> you know, I was yeah pretty much yeah, down in Hobart, solo parenting and it became yeah, pretty apparent to me um, during that time that I needed some support with my parenting. And so I had come across the work of Lale Stone um, and I'd done a workshop with her during the previous year and so I basically just emailed her and said, I need help. <laughs> um, the rage was yeah, pretty problematic for me at that point. And um, I said I need help and so I started – yeah, she started off supporting me in my parenting and, my goodness me, like within a few months my whole life was transformed and I started to really enjoy parenting and, yeah, I suppose that's why I'm here, you know, where I am today, supporting other parents because I feel like with the support – you can completely transform your experience. Well, my next
0: question is how did you come to do what you do and can you explain a little bit about what you do in that capacity?
2: Yeah, sure. So, okay, so going back to – so that year that we travelled, I actually had taken a second year of maternity leave from my my job as I was a hospital social worker and so I'd taken a second year of mat leave with every intention of returning at the end of that that year of travel. But, of course, then in the meantime, my partner got the job in Gippsland and we moved down here. So I had to resign from that job in Melbourne. Um, And in the meantime, I'd sort of started this uh, personal development journey, I suppose. um, I had got very into listening to the Nourishing the Mother podcast and doing some of their courses that Julie and Bridget were running. And it was during during one of those courses that the the idea first – occurred to me or you know that they pointed out that actually there were other things that I could be doing like I didn't necessarily need to be a hospital social worker for the rest of my life which I'd always just thought that's what I was going to do that's what I was good at that's what I loved and um and so that that seed was first planted during one of those courses that you could actually yeah be doing something else and so later in that year I um was just scrolling Facebook and came across this ad for postpartum doula training and I'd never heard of a postpartum doula before. I didn't even know what that was. But after, you know, reading about it and I did a, a webinar, so it was with Julia Jones from Newborn Mothers, um, jumped onto one of her free webinars and just went, yep, like this is what I want to do. Like I just, it just spoke, spoke to me. And so I signed up for that course and I completed that why we travelling. And so by the end of the year I'd graduated from that course and we'd all, that had coincided with us moving to Gippsland. And I was like, right, I think this is what I want to do. And so, yeah, I started up a business just like we'd only just moved to this very small town called Mirby North in Gippsland, had a population of around 1,800 people. So I'm brand new to town, (laughs) creating my own village of, you know, of support and setting up this business. And um, that's how it all started really was just offering. um, So essentially a postpartum jeweller is someone who comes into the home and offers emotional and practical support um, after the birth of a baby. And so that's what I I sort of started out doing. And then, yeah, just as time has gone on, I've just branched out and now just offer or have offered. I mean, I don't do so much of the doula work anymore. I'm only taking on a very, very limited number of clients in that capacity because then I sort of moved more into perinatal counselling, which sort of turned more into like the parenting support. Um, And I've become very passionate about supporting Um, Parents to build connected and respectful relationships with their children, Um, and then went on to study motherhood studies, and um, that's sort of yeah, everything's just sort of grown from there. And so now, yeah, probably my main two parts of my work now are like the parenting support side of things, while also bringing in um, the you know the understanding of like motherhood being a social construct, and you know the perfect mother you know challenging the perfect mother myth and supporting mothers to sort of push back against those you know the shoulds the societal shoulds of um what you know being a good mum is and all of that sort of thing so yeah let's talk
0: about those things a little bit more because there are phrases that I hear a lot um and I when I hear them it's like I feel them but I'm not entirely sure I understand them Mm -hmm. um So the first one is the social construct of motherhood.
1: Mm -hmm. What is
2: that? Yeah, (laughs) okay. Well, um, I'd love to just mention my um, good friend but also mentor and teacher is Dr Sophie Brock who has basically – this is her life's work. She's done a PhD in this area, and so I would highly recommend everyone going and listening to her podcast, "The Good Enough Mother," because um, she will be able to articulate this a whole lot better than me. But essentially, um, you know, the, we need to understand that we mo- we're mothering. We're mothering within a social, like, within like the these social rules essentially. So she she has this really great analogy of like the fish tank of motherhood. Where she describes like the fish tank, like the actual bowl, the, the 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 fish tank itself is like the the social construct of motherhood, and then the fish swimming around in it, like we're all the mothers, and so we're swimming around within this like understanding that it's within a social and, and so, social and cultural construct essentially. So, in our experience as mothers in our society, being in you know. Western society um, is very different to mothers in other cultures around the world and that um, within on on this tank that we're sort of swimming in are these sort of rules of perfect motherhood essentially so they're all over the tank and we're swimming around um, essentially trying to like live up to these expectations of what we perceive is a perfect, you know, the perfect mother, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so I what I'm so passionate about is bringing awareness to that, is that this isn't the way necessarily. This is a social, a socially constructed thing. Yeah. And so these rules, these made up, you know, <laughs> essentially made up rules, uh, exactly that, they're made up. Um, and so I'll often ask um, mums the question, you know, what, well, how do you define a good mother you know what what is a good when you think of a good mother what does you know what words come to mind and um, acknowledging that that is essentially a socially constructed concept that um, and a very unrealistic one that's being that's been um, constructed in our western society by you know in our our, our patriarchal capitalist society and so, when I bring awareness, you know, I'm so passionate about bringing this awareness to people, so that they hopefully can then see that actually, where they're perceiving that they're failing at living up to these expectations, it's actually not it's not a personal or individual failure at all. It's actually the societal these unrealistic societal expectations Being that are placed onto on mothers. Them. Yeah, yeah, and then we internalize that as mothers. So through our social conditioning from when we we're little girls. You know, we are socially conditioned into that, and so we, when we become mums, we then have this idea. This, you know, this
1: idea of what, yeah,
2: what we're meant to do. And so, what happens is when we don't meet those expectations, we can then experience guilt. And so, the way we work through our guilt is actually looking at, well, what are these rules? These made-up rules of perfect motherhood, um, and then sort of deconstructing them, and bringing awareness to, oh, actually, it's not any personal failure. It's because of the society I'm trying to mother, mother in.
0: What are some of the more common um, themes within that? Like, what are some of the really common things that mums say to you?
2: Mm. So, um, okay, things around um, screen time. Oh my kids watch too too much TV, so there's a lot of you know a lot of guilt around screen time. So there's just like you know like a good mum, you know we're socialised with a good mum doesn't you know put their kids in front of the TV for a long periods of time or that sort of thing. Um, it can be around yelling, you know a good mum doesn't yell at her kids. A good mum is calm and collected and you know always <laughs> um, you know manages her emotions <laughs> and you know that sort of thing. So yelling um, things like putting um, when we send our kids to daycare. Because part one of these rules of this you know um, of, of good you know of perfect motherhood is that we um, are, you know mothers should be like the bio, you know that where the biological carers of our children 24/7 a day you know 24/ 7 we always need to be the ones looking after our children so when um, when we yeah send our kids to daycare then that can bring up a lot of guilt of like and that's essentially us measuring ourselves up against that expectation that you know, it's a mother's job to care for her children at all times. Um, oh, returning to work, you know, returning to work versus... I mean, I've just had a conversation in one of the groups I, I, I run this morning around that, around this this situation so many mothers are faced with where, you know, we're expected to mother like we don't work and we're expected to work like we don't mother. and You know, like, it, we can't win. Like, yeah. whatever we do as mothers, we will receive some form of judgment. Um, and what one of the, the mums in my group has just recently returned to, to work after maternity leave and her, her child's nine months old um, and yeah, she's received, yeah, some judgment from one of the women at her workplace around that. And, well, what, you know, <laughs> what's happening? What about your baby? Who's looking after yeah. your baby? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she... Yeah, you know, she worked out, uh, and I love that she did this. She she said she worked out that in in a week there are 168 hours, and of those 168 hours, her baby is either with her, her husband, or her mother-in-law for 148 of those hours, and you know, but she still she was receiving this judgment. Of what's happening? And it's just these are the questions a, a father would never be asked.
0: Never. Who's got your baby,
2: mm, sir? Mm. <laughs> or you know, if the dad's out with the baby and the or. At, <laughs> I'll give you an example from Mother's Day, about two or probably six weeks after my second child was born, I woke up at 5am with gastro. I was really sick. And so, you know, Mother's Day plans got canned and instead my partner just popped my baby in the, like obviously I fed her before, (laughs) I fed her and he popped her in the carrier and took my two, you know, with her and my two-year-old. And they went down to the street to a cafe or something. And he, he, he gets really angry about this stuff as well. But he came back and he said, oh, my gosh, the comments I've just received about what a great dad, you know, oh, super dad and all these, you know. And I was like, I do that every freaking day of the week. No one says anything to no says, me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, it's just so, yeah, yeah. It's just so much to do with how we're socially conditioned. Yeah. We could just do it so
0: much better. Because if all of that wasn't there, women wouldn't feel so bad about themselves and their mothering and their work, and just feel so bad about everything. Mm. And like, why can't we all just get along? Yeah, <laughs> it'd just be I know. so much, and yeah. it'd be it'd be better for men, it'd be better for women, it'd be better for families, it'd be better for kids. Like, because then our kids inherit that, right? Like. Mm.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's something we're so conscious of in our family, as I know that you are too, and yours, that, you know, challenging some of those gender stereotypes, um, particularly during – this became particularly um, present during COVID when I was trying to run my business and had my kids home with me full time while my partner, who's an essential worker, um, you know, (laughs) got to leave the house and just continue work like nothing had changed while I was home madly trying to, you know – do the juggle, and so that was a time where he really he had to he had to step up. I mean, I mean, he 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 already. I don't want to say that, that was just a new thing. Like he was already very involved, and um, we've always shared domestic tasks pretty equally, and that sort of thing. But particularly at that time, it just became so important um, that he really went above and beyond his usual duties of the 50/50 split, really, because. Yeah, as, as soon as he walked in the door, we were tag-teaming and, I, you know, I needed to go upstairs and up to my study and, and work and, um, yeah, whereas I think for a lot of – and so, so, you know, we, we we made it work and we, we managed with his help, but I just spoke to so many mothers during that period that literally everything was on them, like the remote, you know, the remote learning, the running of the household, you know, the remote learning while they've got a toddler running around and a baby, you know, like – some of the situations that mothers have dealt with over the past couple of years, while also how, you know, having a job working. Yeah. Um, paid, paid working, paid paid working. Exactly. So, um, you know, and I feel, uh, and I, and I never want to use the word lucky, (laughs) but I acknowledge that not everyone has a partner like mine who does just come home from work and just takes over, you know, okay, where are you at? What's happening with the dinner? Like just take over the cooking. Um, Hang out the washing, you know, do all those things. Do the washing up while I disappear upstairs to, to to do my bit of work for the day, sort Mm -hmm. of thing. So, and yeah, I, a lot of you know, I I know this research. There's research that um, shows that actually during the pandemic, mothers, mothers domestic, you know, the, the the percentage of mothers participating in domestic labour actually increased. Like, so the the gap between like this is obviously for heterosexual couples, um, widened yeah. the, the gap between what each, you know, each in, in a relationship, with, you know, whether it's a mother and a father, actually the gap widened during the pandemic. So mothers actually were taking on more of the domestic labour. It's,
1: yeah, pretty crazy. <laughs> it is pretty crazy. <laughs> Hold up. What was that?
0: You mentioned before that your mum passed away when you were 11 um, and my mum passed away but I was 28 so it's mildly different <laughs> but I can't, even, I can't even imagine losing your mum at such a formative and young age. How has it been for you being a mum without a mum? Mm.
2: I find that a really hard question to answer actually because I suppose I've, I've – ne- like because it happens and obviously you can't – like you really can't compare, you know, experiences because at whatever age there's going to be different challenges that come up. I mean I didn't have that adult relationship with her to grieve because I've ne- I have never had it, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, I mean, it was – growing up it was just normal for me just not to have a mum around whereas like to answer your question about actually becoming a mother, I think that is – probably the first time I properly grieved for my mum because I yeah I could just see what well, yeah becoming a mum yourself you just realize what a huge transition this is to your life and I just didn't have and also not having my mother-in-law around um wasn't able to have those conversations around what you know what it was like for her like I don't I, ha- I don't really have any understanding of what my birth you know my own birth was like or what it was like I mean I, I can obviously talk to my dad about these things but very different perspective, I suppose, mm. from mum. So, I feel like that's been hard not to have someone to talk to about those things, um, and also not to have the support that a lot of mothers and, and 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 I want to acknowledge how much you know how supportive my dad has been. And you know, I remember him coming over in those early weeks of when my son was born, and he stayed with us for a few nights, and it was one of the you know one of those horrific nights where. Baby just wasn't settling, and he was screaming, and I just wasn't sleeping, and it just—it was just one of those shit nights, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and you know, Dad coming out of the spare room and sort of, "Oh, is there anything I can do?" And he ended up actually taking—you know—he he, he lay down. Um, and just held, just held my baby for a couple of hours, overnight. And he said, "You just go to bed and and sleep." So yeah, when I say that I didn't have the support, you know, like, yeah, you know, I I really remember that that moment of, of Dad's support. And he was, you know, he would come and he'd cook for us. You know, he he cooked for us. But obviously, being in Tasmania, he wasn't he wasn't really around that much either. There was just a couple of little trips that he made. Um, and also my sister from London who was visiting at the time as well and you know I've said to her recently I'll never forget that us being in the kitchen and you making my porridge for me and while I held the baby and like I was basically brought to tears because you know I had this support that I just hadn't had and just her making the porridge and she obviously just didn't even think anything of it, just, oh, just make the porridge. But, like, it was such a big deal for me to have my breakfast made for me because, because we, you know, we're in this, we were in this sort of thing where, you know, baby would wake around, I don't know, 4.30 or 5 or around that sort of, you know, the 4, 5 a.m. and then feed and it would be a bit unsettled and then we'd get back to sleep. And so then we'd sleep until, I don't know, 7.30 or 8. But by that time my partner had already left for work, so I just never had that help in the morning and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I remember, like, yeah, little things like that just making such a difference. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it was – yeah, it was, it was really hard not not to have her around, um, yeah, from a su- support perspective, but also just to, yeah, just talk to her about what, you know, what it was like for her and – yeah. Yeah.
0: And even, like, we, um, we tried to think of questions to ask my mum before she died, like, what are we going to want to ask her yeah. in yeah. five or ten or twenty or however many years, which – Like you don't know what questions you've got until you've got questions. Mm -hmm. Like it's an impossible task Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that the questions I asked were... Not relevant to me now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well that's it. You don't know what to ask until you face the situation, do you? Yeah, yeah. But
0: also I think the poor woman had like less than two weeks to live and we're like, Mum, can we ask you a thousand questions? Oh. <laughs> like... <laughs> but you know, you gotta you you grasp, but yeah Yeah, you, you don't know what you need to know. So not having them there is
2: really yeah. not having your mum's hard. Cause... It is tough. And what what sort of exacerbated that even further was that my my maternal grandma, who was my only living grandparent at that point um my mum's mum died while I was pregnant so I didn't even have her and and very suddenly like Mm. she had she had a stroke we we had we celebrated Christmas together and then Boxing Day morning she just suddenly died and so I didn't have and I I also wish oh had I had the foresight to ask her some of those questions you know um about because you know about my mum you know even like she would have been an amazing source of knowledge and that sort of thing around my mum's mothering journey herself mm. and that sort of thing. But we unfortunately lost her very, very quickly as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, I think, I mean, one positive and I, of, I don't know if you can frame it as a positive, but, you know, one thing that's happened through not having my mum or not having family around, I mean, we've, yeah, we've, since, we've moved to Gippsland where we, yeah, a, a long way away from anyone, um, is that that's essentially forced me to create my own village and my own support networks, and so that's that's been a positive, I suppose. That's come of it is that I am much more. And since I've studied, you know, postpartum care and other cultures, and I've realised actually how a lot of the world does postpartum is very different to how we do it, and not just postpartum but just parenting in general. Um, that's helped me, yeah, set up set up that support for myself through friends and other means.
0: Off the top of your head, can you give me an example of that?
2: Yep. So um, my daughter started kinder last year, um, and during the um, the kinder orientation day, the went to a park for this orientation day. I saw a mum that I'd only ever seen at our music class that we that we go to, and so I, rec- I recognized her, and then we soon discovered that her son was in the same class as my daughter, and so. And then we also realized later on that we're also going to the same music class. So I was seeing her, you know, my daughter was seeing her son twice a week at kinder, and then on on a Friday at the music class as well. So over time, we would, we, you know, we developed a friendship, and over over more time, we discovered that oh, my partner got along really well with her husband as well, and so we all, you know, all sort of started off this friendship. And I think it was earlier this year that I actually reached out to her and said I really. I really want to do more around, like, community care. You know, I'm so passionate about community care and it's so absent in our society. And so I suggested to her, what do you think, um, what would you think about us sharing, like, childcare, like doing a childcare swap? So basically now we've got this. And she was really, really open to it. She was really keen. So now we have this situation where every second Tuesday she picks my kids up from school and they go back to her house and she cooks the dinner and the alternate... Tuesday, I pick up her kids from school and I cook the dinner. And so once a week we're having this community dinner, you know, like with the two families and one of us has the night off, you know, having to think about dinner. One of us gets those extra couple of hours to themselves in the afternoon Um, and it is just working so well, obviously for both of us as mums, but also for our kids. It's like our kids have just gained an extra – Couple of cousins, that that's sort of what the relationship has become because we see each other so frequently, and um, yeah, it's just been the most amazing thing. And do you see that kind of thing
0: happening more in other cultures and other societies?
1: Yes,
2: yeah. So a lot of like we're and this is what I want people to know is that we're we, it's not the norm like the way we live our, our lives in these silos like these nuclear families most of the time is not the norm. Like in other parts of the world, you know, you have a new baby and you have your whole village turning up to support you to, you know, if you've got older children, they're off playing with the other kids in the, you know, in the village. Um, you have meals being brought to you. You have someone coming in to give you a massage. Like that's just the norm. It's not like seen as a luxury. It's just, you know, you've got other people coming in to clean your house and, yeah, yeah bringing the food and doing all those things hanging out the washing or you know um, and a new mother like her job essentially is just to be in bed learning how to breastfeed her child you know her new baby and bonding with her new baby and without all those extra to-dos <laughs> and pressures that are placed on her and there's no there's none of this bounce back sort of culture you know where you just sort of got to get Crack on with it and get going, sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't remember what your initial question was. But we're doing it wrong. We're doing it, it wrong. <laughs> essentially, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Um, well, because part of the work you do is about also creating connection to self. Mm, mm. Um, why is that so important for mums?
2: Mm,
0: well, I think and what? Also, sorry. What do you? What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah. Well, I think again, like the the culture that we've grown up in is a very, um, it's, we're, we're sort of conditioned out of being connected to ourselves. So things like, you know, from an early age, as a child, you know, you fall over and you hurt yourself and you start crying and your parent says to you, you're okay, you're okay. Come on, up your hop, you'll be right, you know, and we have that sort of narrative. Um, So from a very early age, I mean, that's just one example of how we're actually trained out of listening to ourselves. Because if you're, if you've hurt yourself and as a young child, you're getting the message that you're okay, even though you're hurting, you're actually, that that's essentially training you out of listening to yourself and that process, you know, as, as you grow up and as more and more, you know, more and more of these things happen, you know, yeah, the school system is such an example of this, that we just become so disconnected from our Like we're just, we 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 go, you know, kids go to school, they're told what to do, when to do, when to do it. You know, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this. And if you do this as a consequence and, you know, this punishment and reward system that we've got, you know, um, we're not actually trusting our children and that they, you know, we're not really following our child's lead and, you um, Giving them the ability to sort of trust themselves, like we're sort of training them out of that. So I think it starts from a really young age, and then you see that um, again in when we have babies and in birth. You know, so much, so much of that whole experience of being pregnant and birthing a child is, you know, we're we're told what to do. We're not we're not taught to trust our bodies and to trust our babies, and you know, so it's it's a This lifelong. Well,
0: that's also like a, a, it seems to be quite a female. um, I was going to say problem, but that's not the word I'm looking for. Issue, thing. As women, we're told not to Mm. trust ourselves, right? Mm. We're told not to trust our bodies, Mm -hmm. where that's sort of ingrained. And what you're saying is, it makes so much sense. It's just in us. From when we're little,
2: yeah, yeah, and so when we become beaten
0: out of us,
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah, I think we're we're born with that, but then it's it's trained out of us pretty quickly. And there's so many more examples I can give there, but you know, then then we become a mother, and all of a sudden, you you, it's almost like you don't know. Like these questions come up, and this is all part of like the you know our matrescence, uh, you know, this transition from woman to mother that we go through, and it's you know you're asking the questions of like, well, who who am I now? like you've become so disconnected, like you just sort of like you're going through the motions that, you know, living in this patriarchal capitalist society where, you know, success equals productivity and, you know, you just – it's such a doing culture um, that, you know, rest isn't um, revered or, you know, valued and so we're just always doing, 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 doing that, yeah, when we become a mum, it can be really hard to actually sink into that and – and that's why I, yeah, that I suppose that's what I mean by when we that that connecting back in with ourselves is actually coming back to who who, who am I, what is important to me, what are my values, what values do I hold, and what sort of parents do I want to be, what what legacy do I want to leave, um, what and asking yourself the question, you know, what do I need, which is something I speak to mums about all the time of actually asking yourself that question of what do I need right now because we've become so conditioned out of actually asking ourselves that question of just doing and particularly, you know, you become a mum and, it's you know, the perception is all you've got to do is just like kids are first, kids are first, like this whole self-sacrificial thing that we've got going on in, you know, martyrdom motherhood where we always put our children's needs first and I think that's we've got to just get rid of that because when you're actually asking yourself what you need, and you give yourself that, then one, well, one, you're worthy of that just because you're human, uh, and, and without, you know, without attaching that to your children or anything like that. But second, you know, the secondary benefit of that is that the more you filled your cup, and that you're meeting your needs, then the more able you are going to be able to meet the needs of your children and have capacity to hold space for their feelings when they come up and that sort of thing. So. Can I live with you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So are there any sort of practical small ways that mums can do that That? kind of on a day-to-day basis, like bring themselves back to themselves to Mm. trust themselves? Like Mm. it came up a lot for um, a lot of my, like, you know, five of my very close girlfriends had babies all within a a year. Mm Mm-hmm. And all of them said, "You know, all of a sudden, I don't trust myself. Like I'm, Mm. I'm asking. You know, I, I I defer to my partner for. I'm like, should I do this, or do you think they need this, or Mm. does the baby want to do this? Even though I think I know, but I, it's like I don't trust myself anymore. Mm. And Mm. so, what you've just explained makes so much sense." but yeah, are there any kind of any small practical ways that that we can check in with ourselves yeah. to to um, untrain yes. ourselves yeah. a bit? Well, it, it
2: is. I, I really believe that motherhood is a is a process of unlearning so much of what we've been conditioned into. Um, and so, I mean, th- that example I was giving before around you know in the birth space, and you know, I mean, I see this all the time and I hear this all the time from mums. Oh. I'm not allowed to do this, or they will let me do this. You know, and I'm like, this is your body and your baby. And we, we're so conditioned to see out, like, look outside of ourselves for that knowledge. Like you said, you know, you defer to other people, and we're so, um, I think this is, this is, yeah, something I'm obviously very passionate about. Um, but, you know, letting mothers know that they are the experts on their, you know, on their baby and themselves as well. Um, I'll come to answer your question in a second. So um, rather than looking outside and reading all the books and, um, you know, listening to all the podcasts and while I'm while I, i I'm, I'm also very supportive of that because I think because we sort of enter motherhood without a guidebook and we've really – we really we do not learn about any of this stuff during our lives and it is very – you know, we're very much thrown into the unknown when we have a child. So I do believe, you know, there is value in – you know, gaining that knowledge and that support and that sort of thing along the way. But what I'm so passionate about is actually instilling in mothers that they are the experts on themselves and and their children, and to trust themselves and to trust their children. So to answer your question, what are some things that they can do? Well, one, I things like um, journaling and actually asking them, like asking yourselves, questions you know, some questions that you can reflect on through a journaling practice is can be really beneficial for some people. Not everyone. Not, that doesn't appeal to everyone, but you know that that could be one suggestion to try, um, and and asking yourself the question, what do I need, and and what asking those big questions like if I um, imagine you're on your de- on your deathbed, and you're looking back on your life, and this phase of life or of motherhood, where you know wherever you are now, like what do you want to remember about this time, and. That helps you get clear on well, what are my values, what matters most to me, what are my priorities, um, and actually creating space to do that. And that's why um, I'm also I'm also a women's circle facilitator, and I ca- I, I came to that through participating in women's circles myself. And I think they're an amazing. I mean, I know a lot. Um, I know there can be this perception of like I don't know they're <laughs> all a bit woo woo or something, but um, having participated in them in my, in myself. Um, taught me the value of them, that women sitting together in circle um, is so powerful in terms of, yeah, basically coming back to yourself and going along that unlearning journey, I suppose, um, connecting back in and just asking yourself the question, what do I need?
0: So what's something empowering that you would say to
2: other mums? Mm. Can you trust yourself? like how or how how can you trust yourself more um you've got like i know it's a, it's a cliche but you've got this you know um you actually do have all the answers within yourself and rather than looking outside to all these experts about the answers just tuning into what your needs are and what your baby or your child's needs are and being present I think, again, this, you know, a side effect of the society we live within, it's so busy, 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 that we really, unless we are so intentional about it, we don't create space just to be with ourselves and with our children. And I've really felt that coming out of lockdown and we've gone back to school and back to kinder and back to all the activities and, um, as, you know, as hard as some of those aspects of lockdown were, there was so much beauty in that for us as well. I mean, we're, look, we're very fortunate. We live in a, a big house that's got plenty of land. And so I know this experience will be different, you know, depending on your life circumstances. But we, we actually had some really, really beautiful moments of just presence and connection and just being with each other. You know, and once we've gone, we've exited that and gone back to busyness, it's something I've got to be so intentional about and that my partner and I will sit down together and, you know, we'll, we'll look at our week and go, right, okay, where's the time that we're just sitting around playing a board game together as a family or going to the park together or going for a walk or that sort of thing? Like it's actually been really intentional about creating space for that because we live in a society that it, that doesn't happen unless you actually make it happen. Yeah, it's not mm, valued. Mm, yeah.
0: Katie, thank you so much. I have loved this conversation. <laughs> I've loved it too, and also Katie gave me a grown-up when I got here. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that too, but mainly I loved the conversation. <laughs> it was so you are so um, insightful, and I just I love the work that you do.
2: I think you are amazing. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for trekking all the way over to Warragul for a the joy. conversation. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Katie, for our chat today. If you change your mind about me living with you, let me know. There are some wonderful links in the show notes to some of the incredible people and resources Katie talks about in today's episode. If you feel you need some support, these links will give you an excellent place to start. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gunai people and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and elders of other communities who may be listening. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Mummification is produced and hosted by me, Brodie Matner. Our beautiful music is composed by Ben Talbot-Dunn. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You'll be notified when a new episode is released and it helps us reach new audiences, which in turn will hopefully help more women feel less alone. Thanks for
1: listening.